dogs, Jesus, bunnies, whatever. Whatever you believe in. Today I have special guest Ethan Davidson here on the program. Hi, Ethan. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. All right. Perfect. Uh, usually the first thing we do on Some Call Me Tim is I have you look deep into the eyes of Sparkle Jesus. And I ask you, do you believe in Jesus? Um, I'm an agnostic, so there's a good chance that somebody named Yeshua who did something kind or said some of the things that are attributed to him existed. I'm not totally sure on that point, but very likely because there were a lot of uh, Jewish preachers during that time preaching different things. It's not unlikely. But you don't necessarily believe in the... The, the Judeo-Christian model of, or I guess it wouldn't be Judeo because they don't believe in the they don't believe in the Savior. You don't believe that he was like the Son of God, like the Savior of. The, I you know. uh, like I'm seeing like I, I'm agnostic, so I don't totally rule it out. But to <laughs> me, it seems highly unlikely and does not resonate with me. I was a Christian for a few months, a long time ago. A few months. Yeah. Was it over a girl or something, or over? A- well, that's not far from the truth. Um, I was like, I was 13 and there was this very weird group of Christians. You can look them up. They were called the children of God and they did use women and girls to, you know, flirt with you, whatever, (gasps) to recruit. And, and so that was a big part of what got me interested. Wow. Uh, as of for a few months, you, you drank the Kool-Aid. Uh, well, I actually don't care for that metaphor because I met somebody who actually believed belonged to the People's Temple before they went to South America and drank Whoa, the, the actual no way. flavor aid. You know the person? You know I a kn- person? I met. Here's met the story. Okay, I belong to this cult called the Children of God, and I was in a supermarket passing out flyers and trying to money as we do and she was doing the same thing she did not like me oh she didn't like me there was competition but she had a couple of black kids whether she was an african-american she said jim jones is a prophet i've seen him heal the sick cure the blind Wow. And so whenever I, you know, now when I think of the people's temple or drinking the Kool-Aid, I don't think of it as an abstraction. I think of this woman that I actually saw and heard who's probably did go down there and has probably died there. And her children, too. Well, those weren't her children. Oh, okay. So hopefully not them. Because they were I just heard just a they... couple of kids she was trying to, you know. They murdered the babies, too. Oh, like, I know. That's but crazy they, they weren't her kids. Whether she had kids or not, I have no idea. Know. But she had a smooth rap about what the people's temple were doing and all the things they were good things they were doing with their money that she gave to the people she was hitting up for money then these kids that she was kind of trying to indoctrinate she had a completely different rap about how jim jones is a prophet who's healed she observed healing the sick and and yeah and the blind (sighs) so you believe that the children of god were a cult and they indoctrinated you so they you wouldn't would you would you call them Christians or would you? Because some people, I mean, Mormons. It, so I was raised super Christian. So we were taught that anything other than Presbyterianism is a cult. We were even taught that Catholicism is a cult. Right. The word cult isn't terribly useful, 
but I'm using it in the sense of an organization with a definite leader who's believed to have some kind of special divine authority. Therefore, everything he says, you know, because they believed him to be a prophet, the stuff he says, basically God said it. Right. And it had an authoritarian structure. Indoctrination? I don't know. I went there because it was fun. I went there because some girls kissed me. I went there because we got to go out hitchhiking. And and I was bored as hell and lonely and not getting along with my parents and my schoolmates. And that's why I hung out with them. Now, I didn't go off the deep end. They went completely off the deep end later and got into... Well, first swinging and then uh, having their women prostitute themselves and finally into pedophilia. But I was long gone by the time all that was at least at least in the outer circles where I was. That stuff was not yet happening. Wow. What was happening was, okay. the first I went to their party when I was 12. The first time I ever kissed a girl or a woman I kissed every girl and woman in the room because that's what they do they greet each other with a sacred kiss which is in the Bible greet each other with a sacred kiss however they doesn't specify that you're supposed to kiss every opposite sex person in the room but that's what they did wow so that at least on that occasion that got my interest of course it's a 12 year old boys i mean back in those days there there wasn't porn on your iphone there wasn't iphones yeah no you so had you to, couldn't had to scrounge up a playboy from somebody's closet or something i don't even was there even victoria's secret back then or was it like you get the mervyn's catalog and you I don't know. <laughs> you could find porn pretty easily. It was the 70s, but it was just oh, magazines. Oh, Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> but kissing all the girls was definitely a way uh, to get into the church. It was Hell a, yeah, uh, And they called sure. it flirty fishing. They called it flirt. I and remember this call. <gasps> they taught me to do it, too. They taught me to flirt with girls in order to, to attract fish. Them because you're fishers of men and fishers and, of women. And, right, And exactly. they flirt. I remember this call. There was a, wasn't there a Netflix thing on it not too long ago? Go. I remember they had he had pamphlets. Yeah, they were called Mo letters because he went by the name Moses David. Yes, I remember that you were part of that. They got so, but only months. for a couple months. Uh, did they months. did they baptize you? They didn't believe in water baptism. They believed in baptism by the Holy Spirit. <sighs> so I did t- do the prayer that invoked the Holy Spirit. I did speak in tongues and all that. Wow. Stuff. Wow, flirty fishing. I remember seeing something about this and then going on an internet kick where I, I looked up because it was it was like organized prostitution. He was like, go out and have sex with them and yeah, they'll totally join later. the church. I was involved in wow. 75, 76. It wasn't, they hadn't gone quite as cuckoo as they were uh, sure. on the road. But the signs were already there in retrospect. But you at the time were young, but yeah. still able to see that they were cuckoo. No. No. Not exactly, but I never fully, well, in terms of drinking the Kool-Aid, there was a part of me that was always a little detached. Um, I'm grandiose by nature, and the idea of being a prophet, of him being a prophet, I believe that, but my long-term goal was also to be a prophet. Oh, oh. Internally, I didn't tell sure. them that. Right. But I was first thinking I would join to learn from them. And eventually, and because there was this little bit of 
distance. And my parents sent me elsewhere to separate me from them. So that happened. Oh. So that happened. Okay. And that happened. So there were both those things. I was a little bit emotionally distant. And my parents... Where did they Where they send and you? Then they sent me to the Stephen Gaskin farm, which was also kind of cultic. Well, I don't know who Stephen Gaskin and is. And Stephen Gaskin was a hippie guru who uh, started the largest commune, I believe, in the USA called The Farm in the 70s. And it was highly up, authoritarian up in, Portland, in Tennessee. No, in Tennessee. you may be thinking of Rajneesh. No, right, I was thinking of Rajneesh. <gasps> How were you involved in so many of these, and like, so root commune Just the time. It was the 70s. Parents, and it was the 70s, and I was... So to save you from the children of God, they sent you to the farm. Exactly. Whoa. And eventually it worked. I decided, well, the choice came, and I don't do this anymore, but at the time I had given up. I was already using intoxicants at the age of 12, and then I gave them up. And then after being there for months, some local teenagers scrounged up a joint, which we weren't supposed to do, even though adults did it because legal issues. Sure. So we were doing that on the down low, but I basically had the choice of getting high with my friends or thinking of myself as a Christian. Right. So I chose to get high with my friends Good and that basically you, yeah. was like, okay, it's over. I'm not. Right. You're not going to be a temple for the Holy Father because you're polluting the temple with marijuana. Good for or, you. Well, or you whatever. Know, it's just like, I'm, they're not here and I'm on, you know, it's over. It's, it's like. So how long were you away from your parents? So I was away from my parents that time for about five months. Wow. Yeah. Were you like an unruly kid that was just yeah. like, so you were yeah. long-haired, hippie kid? Well, my parents were hippies uh. too, So, but I was unruly. I was unruly. I, I mean, here's the thing. So I'm 13 in the mid-70s. The adults are hippies. Right. Okay. I'm rebelling against them. Sure. And um, what I would do, because they, they, they had rules against going off the farm without permission, the people off the farm were hillbillies that drank moonshine, mm. chewed tobacco, fired sure. rifles, uh, you know, smoked and ate meat and drank milk, none of which was going on at the, the farm. hippies on sure. the farm. So I'm like, oh, these people are fun. So right. I started sneaking, and my rebellion was to hang out, with, sneak away from the hippies and hang out with the hillbillies. Wow. Uh, so all of this upbringing, and the, do you consider yourself a moral person, and do you think that your morality is derived from from this religious past, or, or is it... Is it more in opposition to no, that past? No, currently I identify as a Buddhist. Oh! I'm an agnostic Buddhist. I call myself that, which means that everything I have experience with, such as the benefits of meditation, the ethics, the general philosophy I believe in, and things I don't have personal experience with, such as enlightenment and rebirth, I'm an agnostic okay. about those things. Sure. And but it does inform my ethics and my ethics. I was a pagan for 11, 13, something like that. 11, 13 years, whatever. Uh, my, pagan, I'm not you saying are this is, so interesting. I'm not saying this Ethan. is true of all pagans, but my ethics were pretty shady for a while. Um, and Buddhism has improved my ethics. I use the word ethics rather than morality intentionally because morality to me. 
seems dualistic, good versus evil. Right. Whereas ethics, Buddhism, they use the terms, at least usually they use the terms, skillful versus unskillful. Uh Okay, so whenever you start something new, you're unskillful at it. Right. And over time, with practice, you can become more skillful. And that's how I view ethics. I try to be more ethical, more skillful than I otherwise would be. Are are people... Well, see, you're moving away from right, good and bad and right and wrong. You don't like the duality of that. I don't like dualism because am I good and are other people evil? I don't see it that way. Nobody's pure. Maybe you could argue that certain people, but I mean, that's because something happened or there's something wrong with their brain or whatever. But for the most part... People are not pure good or pure evil. Right. So it's 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 a we do, we, uh, spectrum. It's a spectrum exactly. Right. See, I I feel like evil people who are like they're evil. I think that they think that they are acting out of goodness. Exactly. So that's where it's hard because then it gets down to perspective. Right. Of, I mean, we talk a lot about our current president and I think that he is evil and the things that he's doing right now putting children in cages immigrants but I think that he thinks he's doing good so that's hard to like come from a moralistic standpoint yeah I realized at a very early age probably still in my early teens that everybody thinks that what they're doing is right Uh. and I really struggled with those kinds of philosophical questions a lot so pagan for 13 years uh we've we've never had that you're the first person who's identified as a pagan or Uh having spent time with the the pagan i don't know if you call it a religion or a i mean it's a community basically how it is in the bay area it was a a community with a lot of small groups within it that were friendly with each other and some people belonged to more than one and and they'd come together at gatherings but they didn't believe exactly the same thing each little group had its own belief system but they were friendly with each other so it was like individual covens that were part of some of them were covens some of them called themselves other things depending on which tradition they came from (laughs) which tradition Right. (laughs) some identified as witches some didn't sure so how did you get into paganism which is is like ancestral when i think of the word pagan i think of like pre-Christian rituals that humans perpetuated to have health and good harvests and to commune with one another in a meaningful way. That's that's a, a valid definition. I use it in a very general way, which is they believe to qualify as a pagan under the broadest definition, you, you should believe Either lit- some more metaphorically, some more literally, but you should venerate or worship more than one deity, at least two, and at least one of them should be female. Oh, good. Wow. <laughs> I mean, as I see it. Yeah. Well, I mean, otherwise you, I mean, it's so funny because we were talking about duality, but we're kind of broken into these dualities, man and woman, and right. there's, and exactly. there's right and wrong. Even and those do even man and woman is being challenged now, which I think is healthy. Right. Absolutely. Uh, 
and how how we choose to identify and what traits and is it it's the societal like religion is sort of a reaction to what's happening in the society and how people try to I don't know justify death maybe but paganism is like a celebration of it like life I don't I don't know it I've, tends to be more life affirming more and I mean, if we're talking about neo-pagans as opposed to what you would call paleo-pagans, which was basically what we were, we were, for the most part, we were trying to recreate ancient traditions, which eventually is why I stepped away from it, because I felt like you could only go so far, because really the roots of those traditions had been cut off, most of them, and there was a little bit of cut and pasting, and... So um, I felt like I needed to go deeper. but um, So Buddhism for you is deeper than paganism? Yes, because it, it, for me, uh, I mean, I, I, yeah, for me, yes, because it has a sustained tradition with roots that go back millennia. That's an uninterrupted tradition that, oh. you know, can build on itself and so forth. That's really interesting because Christianity has changed drastically from the times of jesus and the church through what's happening now and then even into the cults or the new religions that are created in the name of jesus like the mormons with after he was resurrected he showed up in north america and he right. talked to us with these tablets he talked to the native american Indians. yeah yeah you can, you can like, make up any kind of nonsense you want i mean i've read <laughs> i've read the entire bible cover to cover and the apocrypha the whole thing um as far as jesus he said according to what people report he said a lot of good things but the thing is you can say love your neighbor but that's not going to make you love your neighbor sure you have to cultivate love you have to know how it's a skill set you have to have a technique for cultivating compassion love and Buddhism actually has techniques on how to have doing that. Wow! They have a sign. It's you know they practiced it for millennia. They know how to do it. Wow! So that's the difference to me. And there's a mindfulness to Buddhism, right. like it is about your mind. It's it's pretty much all about your mind. Wow! And and that your own. I guess that makes sense. That. I mean, our thoughts are what construct our world. Yes, and our actions. And our actions. And our experiences of the world. So if we can sort of be mindful and mold and think about our choices. Ah, I'm trying to grapple because I don't... uh, My my history is confusing because I was raised steeped so so deeply in Christianity. Presbyterian. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that I wasn't. informs so many of my decisions. I mean, I, ethnic, ethnically, I, I was raised Jewish. Oh, really? So my look on Christianity has very much been an outsider looking in, as it is with most of the other religion. And I've, I've observed, I'm, I have a lifelong history, or at least since I was 12, of being very curious about religions and observing them. And I, I'll go to any house of worship and observe it. I, I'm just curious like that. Right. So, But my view of Christianity has been as an outsider looking in. Right. Someone raised in it. So you were, ra- you were raised in a... a- in a Jewish home. Well, and here it's, it's complicated because again, your mother's it's Jewish. The 70s. My mother, father, and stepfather 
were all, they're all deceased, but they were all ethnically Jewish. Okay. And they all maintained aspects of it while also involving themselves in other religions. Interesting. And my mother and stepfather were dabbling in Tibetan Buddhism. My father converted to a Jap uh, an obscure Japanese religion called Tenrikyo. Whoa, like so even, not was, even Shintoism. I, I, when I was 12 and preparing for my, my bar mitzvah, so I was supposed to be identifying as Jewish. And, and meanwhile, I was getting exposed to all these different things. So right. I was just having my mind blown at a time when it's already crazy with your hormones. And so, right, right. You know, I was... Well, but in Judaism, the, the rabbis don't, they, um, you're supposed to question everything. It's like part of the religion is to ask questions and to challenge ideas. Well, uh, and, and there's a huge amount of variation within Judaism. Sure. So some of them, of course, are hardcore fundamentalists. Some of them basically just go on the you know the holy days to stay connected with the tradition sure. and, and everything in between and there's certainly a deep tradition of debate discussion yeah. uh you know even in the more orthodox the, the ultra orthodox traditions where there definitely are some things you cannot challenge there's still this tradition within that of debate what does this actually mean how sure. do we interpret this and that kind of thing and and judaism is you said you're culturally or ethnically. Yeah. That culture is passed down through the food and through, yes. you know, so if you make challah and latkes and... I mean, I can't make them, but I can eat them. But you could eat them. Good yeah, exactly. Them. And I love going to New York and, yeah. you know. <laughs> but you can be a part, you can be... You can be ethnically a Jew right. and not be religiously a Jew. Right. But you still get to be kind of part of the tribe. So that's nice. Depending on who if you want to be or not. Know, depending yeah. on who's interpreting it, but sure. basically, yeah. Yeah. What did your parents think of your move to paganism? They were fine with my mood, move, move to paganism. They hated me being a Christian, and that was even before they knew <laughs> that, that was, it was the a worst. You're super 12. weird form of Christianity. Yes. They thought it was an ordinary form of Christianity, and they hated that a lot. Sure. When I became a pagan, they were like, "Yeah, that's fine, whatever." When I became a Buddhist, they were like, "Oh, that's great," you know. Wow. Uh, what was the the best thing that you took from paganism? I mean, I like the the connection to the earth i like god it's hard to articulate i still feel this veneration for deities whether they're literally true or not huh. there's something deep in us that responds to them and well at least mahayana buddhism kind of revived Early forms of Buddhism kind of uh, got rid of deity worship, uh -huh. and later forms kind of revived it. It's complicated, but that's right. sort of what happened. Um, but when I go to, uh, like, if I go to a Mexican restaurant and see a saint, I'll, I'll venerate it. If I see a Buddha image in a, in a Thai restaurant, I'll venerate it. If I see something I'm not even sure what it is in a Chinese restaurant, I'll venerate that. If yeah. I see a Koran in an 
you know, a Yemeni restaurant. I'll, you're I, you're I, really respectful. My interaction with other cultures these days comes through eating a lot. Yeah, me in, too. But, Absolutely. But, uh, that's. I mean, that's the one of the bedrocks of, of culture is food. Right, I mean, if you right. don't want to choose the religious practices, food's the best way to go right, to understand right, right, right. what but the anyway, history of the people. Uh, this time of year, which is today's Halloween, and mm. and then Dio's Day of the Dead moved, is coming yeah. up, mm-hmm. I really still resonate very strongly with this season, and it's actually the season where I'm emotionally, energetically the highest. Sure. Gener- and then the Christmas season. Well, crash. but I'm really big on, so I created, um, I like to celebrate the winter solstice mm. a lot. Right. Uh, and I don't consider That's myself pagan. a pagan. I don't right. consider myself a pagan, I but I celebrate the winter solstice in a, in a very specific way that I've sort of created for myself yeah. culturally. Well, every <laughs> culture has some holiday. Most cultures, anyway. Let me avoid overgeneralizations. Many cultures have celebrations around the winter solstice that involve lights of some yes. sort. Sure, yeah, because it's the darkest time of the year. Right. Yeah, that's the only thing that makes sense. It's the same thing of like um, the Nordic people, why they love Christmas so much. Yeah, and a lot of our Christmas is Nordic. Right, and the cookies and the and the and the. The tradition of when people come over, you feed them because it's the darkest time of the year. And if right, right. if you make a bunch of cookies out of the butter because you're Danish and you bring all your friends over, everybody get eat, eat, eat. Everybody get a cookie because it's like the darkest time of the year. And I don't know, eating makes you feel communal and right. safe. And I love all that stuff. Yeah. Uh, what are some of the rituals that you still practice? Are there any, or you said meditation, so that's a ritual. Yeah, I my meditation practice used to be very strong. It got very weak because I had severe health problems, <gasps> and I'm trying to um, gradually build it back up again and sure. with a different brain and body than I used to have in a what, lot of Can ways. I ask what happened? Yeah, um, so back in the early 70s, uh, well, late 70s, early 80s, now I'm like 16, 17, 18, I'm a punk rocker, and all my friends eventually started shooting drugs, and so I did too, and I caught hep C, oh. and then decades later, I had severe liver disease, Okay. and so I had to have a liver transplant. Wow! And in order to get a liver transplant, you have to have a very solid support network and that was very um, gnarly because they won't do it. They just won't if you can't demonstrate that you have it. And all my friends, as soon as they realized, you know, what was expected, people kept would keep kept <gasps> dropping out. And finally, somebody in my Buddhist sangha. So they literally saved my life. She said, "This is too much for any one person. We need to create a team." Because I was like, "Well." This guy dropped out. I guess it's hospice when it gets bad enough. Wow. And she was like, well, we need to create a team. And that's what they ended up doing. So after I got my liver transplant, I went to my Buddhist center in the guest room. They took care of me for a month. And if they hadn't, and before that, they came with to all the uh, to a lot of medical appointment, which is required because they figure, well, if you can't get someone to t- come to medical appointments. Sure, how are you going to take care of you when you're... Can't, Were you bedridden for a month? I was not bedridden, but I was very delicate. Right. I mean, my scar goes from one side of my belly to another. Do you still take rejection meds? Oh, yeah. That's for life. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And you caught it from, what, sharing needles in the 70s, Uh, early 80s? Early 80s. I'm almost sure. That's very much the most likely... 
And I'm almost sure I remember the night that I got it. Whoa. What? Um, tell us. Yeah, yeah. I think it's so interesting. Jesus. I was, you know, I was living, I was 18. I was living with my parents, very much unwelcome, as was the pattern <laughs> growing up. They encouraged me to go Get out of here. anywhere other than with them as often as possible. So I was staying in this punk rock uh, converted storefront that people were living in. There were a whole bunch of people. Squatting? I don't know if they were squatting or paying minimal rent. It was okay. the early 80s, so sure. they might have been paying some small amount of rent. But there was lots of drugs, and there was one night where the meth arrived. Now, this must be like 81. Mm. The words AIDS, HIV, Hep C, and needle exchange were not in anybody's vocabulary. Sure. And so there was a needle, and there were like 15 people in the room, and I was not first in line. I was towards the end of the line. Wow. So I did my shot and had a great, fun evening, and then about a week later, I got super ill and turned yellow. And Wow. Yeah. It, it, it hits you that quickly. Well, not always. Not always. Many people, it's completely silent until decades later. Me, I got very ill for a week, and then it was silent until decades later. And then you just had liver, like liver well, failure. No, I was actually doing well. I was swimming in the bay five times a week. I was active, and then my stepfather said, "Hey, I, you know, but but we knew I had Hep C. I'd been sure. diagnosed. I got diagnosed because I was seeing a new woman, and you know, yeah, polyamory at stuff, that point yeah. in my life, and we'd all both been around. So it's like, well, let's get an STD screen. And then I found out in '95 that I had Hep C. Wow! But then it was I was still physically active and had plenty of energy. Sure. And I was like, okay, well, there are non-responders. I must be one of those. So then my stepfather, who was a doctor, said, well, you might go talk to this liver doctor. He's a good liver. And he was like, no, you're not a non-responder. Your liver is dying. <gasps> if you don't get some treatment, you'll wow. probably die within a few years, five, ten. Wow. And, um, and so I did the whole year of interferon ribavirin, and um, that didn't work. Wow. Hep C. Like, no one ever talks about Hep C. In my circles, people talk about it a lot. Sure, but like... I, I, there aren't commercials on TV warning you against. There aren't, yeah. like right now. There's like opiate crisis is killing people. Narcan's important, but people aren't going. It, and I, I don't even. Are we past that situation? So but, now there is a cure that's better. The other cure, a week of really harsh treatment. No, not a week. Once a week, you shoot this stuff up, and every day you take pills. Very hard on you. I did it for a year, wow. and the success rate was like 50-50. And my liver couldn't tolerate a full dose, so they told me your success rate is like one in third odds. Wow. And it, it, so I didn't get cured. But then later, before the transplant, thankfully, I got the cure. I took the pills once a day for six months and got cured. And so that's good because before that, people would get the transplant. And then because they had to suppress their immune system, the virus would come back oh raging stronger than before. So in like another five, 10 years, you were back where you started. Right. With the new liver now down the tubes. Right. So that was the problem was that yeah. they cured the hep C, but your liver was trashed. Right. And so so you haven't been able to drink alcohol for years, Well, huh? I had already quit alcohol, fortunately, because I, when I was about 23, I started 12-stepping. Oh. And so, um, you know, abstinence-based program. And then uh, when I went in for the transplant, I had to sign a um, form that said, 
three forms. One said, I will never again drink alcohol. Second form said, I will never again smoke anything. Oh. Third form said, I will never again use non-prescribed drugs. Wow. And I said, okay, okay. I'm already not doing those <laughs> things. Right, great. And if you haven't been abstinent for like a year and a half, they won't even They won't even you. consider you. So did someone, someone had to die for you to get a liver, huh? Yep, yep, yep. Do you know who it was? No, they have a program where you can email them. And at first I was like feeling too crappy. I thought, let me wait till I'm more grateful. I'm right. not feeling that grateful. After a while, I was feeling grateful. So I emailed them and said, thank you very much. And then they have the option to respond or not. And they didn't. They didn't respond. You know, you email through a third party. You don't sure. have their email. Right. So. And they just didn't, they didn't reach and out. And chose not to. And so. you, so you have, I mean, that's interesting because, you know, we usually talk about like belief and I usually ask people, you know, is an afterlife real? <laughs> you're like the afterlife. I'm somebody's, you're I'm somebody's, part of somebody you're part of somebody's, yeah, me. it's nutballs. <laughs> that's just funny to think of like, there's something inside of you that used to be inside of another person. That's right. And it makes you live. Right. Whew. I mean, do you ever have like weird dreams about that? Like where you've met this person no. or you don't? No, people say, do you, you have any emotions that you never had before? I'm like, you mean like coming from someone else? No, honestly, no. <laughs> I mean, is there, so there's no like weird spiritual connection you think, or it's just, it's just biologically, you needed a liver, here's the liver. Now you're alive, biologically cool. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty science. much. I mean, people, people, it, it just, I, I mean, I've already made it clear when I go, if anything is useful to someone else, give it to them because it's, otherwise it's just rotting meat. Good point. And it's like when I get my hair cut, when I get my nails clipped, when I get a blood sample, which I have had to do a lot. Am I, do I care what happens to that Good after point. that blood sample? They take whatever information. Do I care what happens after? No, oh, right. I don't. Sure. That, that, that makes a lot of sense. Wow. I'm just trying to wrap my head around that. You have someone else's like body part inside you. Mm -hmm. That's weird. I mean, I've, I just don't think anybody would want any of my body parts because I've been such an abuser for so long and now like what you don't my eyes are starting i'm starting to have ocular degeneration so you don't want my eyes because mm -hmm. they kind of starting to suck and yeah i don't know how much use my body is going to be to anybody either yeah. but if it is but if it is they can have it once sure. i'm done with it it's yeah. not useful to, it just turns into a slab of rotting meat that's how i look at it, if it's not used so you don't so buddhists don't believe in an afterlife no they do they do because nirvana right Right? Well, or no. enlightenment? Yeah. Okay, let me get into it. It's complicated. So, it's actually quite complicated. Hindus believe in reincarnation. Right. Buddhists believe in rebirth. What's the difference? Well, one monk explained it this way. He said, we don't believe in reincarnation because we don't believe in incarnation. Incarnation means spirit coming into flesh. Aha. Uh -huh. Buddhists do not believe in eternal, unchanging soul. At least the older school of it doesn't. Sure. There's no... There's. Basically, the Buddha taught that there is nothing anywhere in the universe that is permanent, unchanging, fixed. Ah. So there's something in us that's constantly changing when it goes to, it goes to another body, but it's not exactly the same as a soul because Hindus, like Christians, believe 
that the soul is this pristine little right. thing that's eternal. It's the hubris of man, yeah. Yeah. You know that I am so important that the me that is me now that the consciousness that I inhabit and that I put out to the world that is so unique and perfect and awesome that it's just the hubris really right. that when I die the me moves on because it's so special and snowflakey and awesome <laughs> that it has to get into something else yeah and so I guess strictly speaking Buddhists or at least Theravadan Buddhists believe that the not me that's constantly changing uh, manifests in a different body and continues to be constantly changing as that body is also constantly changing. Right. And uh, even if you happen to be lucky and are reborn as a god, which Theravadans did believe in that, that god is not immortal and is they don't really worship them wow they're just another form of being that got lucky for maybe a few thousand years and then they get old sick and die and it goes into another body wow see i've always had trouble with the hindu concept of and also the christian concept of a soul Mm -hmm. and uh and the rebirth the trans uh i don't know which transfiguration trans migration because the population of the world is exponentially growing. Well, like so, there have been animals in the last lot. There's less animals than there used to be. But, oh, but then again, oh my God, you just said a mind-blowing thing. <laughs> so like, so, see, now that actually makes sense to me from a Hinduistic perspective, because as we kill the whales, save the whales, save the whales. Maybe that's where like autism comes from, is that they were a whale. It, and I now they're a human. That many people are not so well behaved because this is their first time round as a human. But I exploded that by one of my uh, elder, you know, in my Buddhist tradition. And he said, well, don't think of it as just on this planet. Because mm. actually both Buddhists and Hindus were way ahead of science in believing in a whole universe of planets that, wow. that were populated. Wow. So you may wind up somewhere completely different. Right. The Mormons, too, they're totally into that. That well, you become yeah, a god and create a, a your own planet. very odd little spin on it. Yeah. There's this fun. There's this, uh, as I understand it, that you, are, you become a god depending on if you study the scripture but that's why you have to have so many wives and so many children because you populate your own planet well, yeah, as a god sort of My, mainstream Mormons gave up polygamy a long time ago but but basically it's this god as we know it is a guy with a body who lives on planet Caleb and if you're a good Mormon when you die you get to go to planet Caleb and have spiritual wives and spiritual children and then eventually you continue on this good trend. You get to have your own planet and be a god. So, so, I mean... That's my understanding anyway. (laughs) Mine has been similar. It's just so, it's so amazing to me that how flexible the human mind is that we can believe, we can believe that... This, the, so many people believe that this man Jesus was born of a virgin because, mm-hmm. you know, did Mary give her consent to God or the angel to touch her and have her be pregnant with the Son of God? Like, it's just it's funny to me. But we there's certain things that we suspend our reality and our belief. We talk to a 33 year old man in prayer mm-hmm. and believe that he yeah. talks back to us. Yeah. Our minds are so plastic that we can believe that, or we can believe that there are planets that we inhabit or we can, but then the close-mindedness at the same time of so many people to say well what you believe is so wrong 
you know, that this, that Hinduism can't possibly exist. It's like, well, but we believe that a guy died and then rose again. And I mean, is that really more mature than worshiping a, a elephant-headed person? Sure. Like, really any weirder to venerate a guy who's helplessly nailed to a cross and can't seem to do much to help himself get off that thing. Right, well, and then that's the whole idea of, of sa- I feel like so much of religion is based on sacrifice so that when we have shitty lives, we'll be like, well, I'm sacrificing because in the afterlife, right. you know, the meek shall inherit the earth, which is a weird thing to say. But that if you're, if you're meek and you let people hurt you and you're poor and all of these things and you're rich in spirit but poor that you get to, in heaven everything is so much better so yeah. it's I I just I'm amazed at how the, what's happening in our nation even with this like rampant Christianity and moralism against these other people and is is able to we're able to accept that yeah and every religion as well as many non-religious political ideologies have this wing, but sticking to religion, every religion has this right-wing fundamentalist, extremist, fringe element to it. What's the extremist uh, Buddhism? Who are the extreme Buddhists? Yeah, so there are, actually, in, for example, Meditate! Well, no, (laughs) if they were saying meditate or destroy, what, meditate and destroy, that's, anyway. Sounds like a new metal band, meditate and destroy. Actually, that's a, book by Noah Levin, who founded the Dharma Punks. That's his actual title. But um, but no, if you look at what's happening in Burma or Sri Lanka, and people look at this uh, mass killing in Burma of the Rohingya Muslims, uh, and they're saying, well, if they're even making Buddhists mad, they must really be angry, But or <laughs> Muslims must really be bad because they're even making the Buddhists mad. And I'm like, no, you got to look at the history of Burma, because the thing is, Burma is a nation where the government co-opted Buddhism and the um, monks and nuns that would um, go along with their program were given beautiful buildings, good food. The ones who wouldn't were driven out or killed. So there was the Saffron Revolution not that long ago where some students started rebelling, not for the first time, and some monks and nuns joined them and the government tolerated it for a minute and then started killing them. Wow. A lot of them fled to Thailand. So what you have left in Burma are the ones that were always willing to go along with the government program. Of Buddhism. Of this particular statist, sure. fundamentalist, right-wing, tolerant of violence, very much not in key, and they cannot quote anything the Buddha said to justify it. Right. Because unlike the Bible, the Quran, the Bhagavad Gita, there's nothing in the Pali Canon that tolerate, that condones or approves or justifies that kind of violence. Right. But they still manage to come up with reasons. Wow. Yeah, because I thought Buddhists were all peaceful, like Mostly, all life is really they, important. They, and... That is what you're supposed to vow not to take life. And... Are you vegetarian? No. The group I belong to encourages vegetarianism, and I respect and approve of vegetarianism. My metabolism, my life, my organizational capacity, my digestive system 
just don't go along with vegetarianism. Sure. I was a, on that vegan commune for five months, and I kept sneaking off to get animal products from the local hillbillies. When I came back, I was diagnosed anemic. So I wasn't wow. just being bratty, although I was being bratty, but my body really was telling me. Yeah, say, hey, you got to get off these rice and beans. Uh, yeah. As a, as a cultural Jew, do you not eat pork? I do eat pork. You do eat pork? Yeah! I, I'm not kosher. I've yeah. never been kosher. My my parents were not kosher. They ate shellfish, but they did generally abstain from pork. I, I mean, I understand contextually why Jews didn't or don't eat shellfish, and it's that they're bottom feeders, and lobsters eat, lobsters and crabs and stuff, they eat the carrion off the bottom of the ocean. Yeah, so, and the poop and whatever. All that stuff. Uh, so they're unclean. But... Uh, I find it so interesting. There's um, a group of Chinese people, and I've seen them in, in magazines and stuff like that. And Chinese people love their fish and their shellfish. And their well, pork. And their pork. But there's there's these amazing crabs that live in the Indian Ocean at the mouth of the Ganges River. Mm-hmm. And they have claws that are like the size of your head because they eat dead people. Because the, because the Hindus put their bodies in the Ganges River. It's like a sacred river. Yeah. And you wash in the river, you put dead bodies in yeah, the river. It's very iffy to wash in that river. And it's, but it's it's it, but it's part of their religion. I know. I know. But at the but at the mouth of the river there are these amazing crabs and the Chinese go in and they get these crabs live and then they put them like they have these restaurants where like the first floor is uh, an aquarium and then it's you know you could be like I want that crab and they've got these enormous claws. And I, I, I get it. They eat dead people. So like, well, there was a thing my mom taught me. Apparently, she learned it in Japan. I guess this is a thing that some Japanese people say when they eat a crab. They say, "See you soon." Wow. Because well, I mean, and that's a that's a thing. See you soon. It's wow. I mean, that's a form of reincarnation. Sure. Mm-hmm. Well, I lo- I love. Life shellfish too and, and so forth. bacon and pork and all that stuff uh do, when when you got your liver transplant mm-hmm. what like how many rules do you have to follow now and is that like a religion in itself i wouldn't call it a religion i have to take pills every day i mean how many less than i was taking before oh Okay. I was on a lot of pills. My body wouldn't metabolize vitamins, so I had to take a interesting lot of vitamins. I had to take a lot of other pills. It wouldn't metabolize. I had to take pills so I could pee. Otherwise, oh. otherwise my belly swelled, my feet swelled, my lungs got water got into my lungs. It was it was I was in bad, you know, I was not wow. in good shape. I was taking a lot of pills, so they asked, well, you know, after you get this, you're going to have to take pills for the rest of your life. Do you think you can do that? I said, I'm already doing that. That's fair. Nope. No skin off my nose. Wow. How long, so how long has it been? Do you feel well now? I feel much weller than I did. The immunosuppressants have side effects of their Mm. own. So I still low energy, have joint pains and you know, but compared to where, and, and it's been over a year. Okay. So it was slow. It was slow because, you know, it was slow coming back. And, yeah. and there were times when I was like, why did I bother? But I don't feel that anymore. Good. Because now I'm bouncing back. Yeah. So like, 
Oh, anti-reject. Do the anti-rejection meds have side effects as well? Yeah. Um, like I was saying, if you take too much, you get headaches. And if you take, even if you take the right amount, you get joint pains yeah. and, and stomach issues. They were going to put me on corticosteroids, which were adrenaline. Ooh. Uh, they did put me on that, and I told them before I went in, I said, look, I've tried this stuff. It makes me crazy. They said, well, we're, uh. and they were <laughs> sure. going to put me on it for life. They put me on it for eight days while I was in the hospital, and it made me really crazy. Sure. It made me really crazy. Just thinking crazy thoughts? It or went like, beyond crazy thoughts. Huh. I I pulled the, my tubes out sure i was I, I i got into this grandiose zone while i was by myself where i felt like and i had been reading ayn rand whom i hate i'd been <laughs> reading her out of curiosity for i read 300 pages of atlas shrug before i went into the hospital which i don't recommend and then i got into this zone while i was on all this adrenaline where i believed that i was a superior person clearly i was a superior person because the hospital had been organized for my benefit everyone sure. around me was serving me but i was going to liberate them and myself uh by pulling all the tubes out of my body wow and then the nurse walked in and she said what are you doing and i said i think um having a psychotic episode yeah it just just so soon as you know it just I think I'm having a psychotic episode. And then yeah. they put you on antipsychotics? or No. no. They cut my adrenaline. They oh, knew okay. that they, they knew it they, was part of it. They knew. They knew what was going on. And I told them enough times, listen, this stuff will affect me more than the average person. Sure. Because I know it. Because I've taken doses and you're going to give me much higher doses. And please give me as little. And please give me some tranquilizers and painkillers to counter it. Sure. So, Our doctor's gods? You know, the transplant doctors, I used to call them the God Squad. And the reason is because they literally decide who lives and who dies. Wow. And because they have that responsibility, they have a very dissociated vibe to them. Hmm. And I I heard one of them talking. I was in the hospital earlier before my transplant in in the liver ward, you know, and they were talking about someone else. And they said, well, his son says he's going to help out, but he also wants to go to college. And we're not asking for someone to bring soup once a week. We're not that's not the level of support we're asking for. Right. So that's how they talk about these people. And, and there's wow. this way of framing it where they subtly blame the people for not. Sure. Because they're having to justify that they have. There's not there's enough, not enough livers. Go, and there's they not have enough to let livers. people die. And yeah. And how and how do you choose who lives and dies? Right. What you can't like. What do you get? Did you have to write a written statement like about how you live your life or anything? Well, I did Was have it? to sign those documents. Right. Sure. Those vows to not to the, basically swear off alcohol, smoke, and recreational drugs. Right. But they didn't like, it wasn't like applying for college where they're like, write a personal statement about why you deserve this liver. But they were substance testing me. They were substance Uh, testing me regularly towards the end. Because that gives them an out. If someone doesn't pass, then they don't get the liver. Yeah, and it was so bad that one time I was in the hospital for like 10 days and I came out and they said, 
and I got a notice, your, your substance test is coming up. And I called. I said, look, I'm going to flunk that test. I was in the hospital. Yeah, they're giving me opiates because I'm in a crazy amount of pain. Right. And But they still gave me, a, they said, next time you're in the hospital, tell them not to give you morphine. And I'm like, or whatever. And I'm like, I don't think I can tolerate being in the hospital for a long time if they, and, and didn't really want to hear that but fortunately he let it go but like if i was in pain i would have to call him and say look i'm in crazy pain can i take a painkiller and and he would say no can't and then i said well can i take cannabinoids to relieve pain you know cbd the least intoxicating form of it and he said, well, as for smoking it, no. Right. As for taking it in other ways, we don't have a policy. Oh, so you can eat edibles? Basically, okay. they wouldn't come out and say it. Sure. But they were giving me a loophole. We have no policy on that matter. That's okay. what they okay. said. So okay. I did sometimes when I needed it, because I don't even enjoy the cannabis high. I actually do still enjoy the narcotics high, so I still have to be careful there. <laughs> but I don't enjoy the cannabis high. But when I'm in pain, I'll take sometimes CBD, the lowest dose of THC possible. Yeah, like 10 milligrams or something to take the edge off. You know, so. Wow. I mean, what happens if, why haven't doctors yet created like, you know, uh, we can we can 3D print our stuff. So why can't we 3D print livers? And if we could 3D print livers. we can. I mean. But Does, they're not made out of plastic. Right. I mean, you have to make them out of some kind of tissue to be able to put them in yeah, the human body. Yeah, one day when we get to the point where we can clone organs, and that may happen one day. You know. And then we really are gods. And then, I don't know. You know, I saw something on YouTube that, uh, I think it was David Rockefeller, one of the Rockefellers, had eight hearts and two stomachs over the course of his life. No. And you're not supposed to be allowed to do that. It's basically one per person, two if you're really lucky. But he just kept, he was rich enough, he could keep, and he lived to be 101. Wow. But eight heart surgeries. I wouldn't want to bother. It's too much trouble. At a certain point, it's like, Whatever I, I, I said, you know, if this lever fails, God is trying to tell me something. Sure. You know? Right. I mean, I don't know if I'd really want to go through all that again. Well, it, I mean, I wonder if we find a way to keep the body alive forever. I just, I don't even think, I think the soul would go away any, like the, the light's got to go out at some point. Yeah. Like, no matter how we try to you know keep ourselves alive like physically i i don't know do you, so no afterlife for you slab of meat everything's done well no i'm not saying that the body is a slab of meat right after that i'm agnostic sure the consciousness could might or might not go anywhere yeah. doesn't bother you though does it bother me i mean does the idea of dying bother me yeah does it i think it bothers everybody oh, okay. to be honest did you think you were gonna die with the liver thing i thought it was very possible that i would die soon right it was very likely and if i hadn't had a transplant there was no guarantee that i was gonna get a transplant it was very iffy the whole thing was very rocky my support people kept dropping out oh. so uh yeah i was i was really thinking about okay hospice and what are, what are, you know what are your options? options do you do you have a will 
I do. Okay. I, I have to put it back on the refrigerator. I, I <laughs> my stepfather. I looked after him as when he was dying. Um, he he went through hospice. Oh. He was a doctor, and when he got cancer, first he he didn't tell anyone for a long time. Wow. I think my mom was she had she was narcissistic and would get angry at him when he was sick so oh. that was one of the reasons but then he said well i looked into chemo and i decided it's not worth it so i'm gonna do hospice wow yeah. no I, I i know some people who i know a guy who passed away last year and a girl who passed away this year and they made that choice yeah. not to do chemo apparently a lot of doctors even doctors who will give other people chemo when it's their turn they'll say no yeah yeah and i have another buddy who actually got through breast cancer with chemo and Mm -hmm. she said if it ever comes back she won't do it again yeah i have she was like there's just it's too hard i'm like really very low dose of chemo because i had liver cancer too wow they you just had to toss that liver in the garbage well when you're actually (laughs) when you're on a transplant list and you get liver transplant one of the doctors explained it this way and he wasn't kidding he said this is the only time in your life where somebody is gonna say congratulations you have cancer because it puts you to the head of the oh my other gosh. people have to be in the intensive care ward for a month which i was not willing to do i said i'm sure. not gonna do that no, 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 no. and so uh waiting for the liver but if you have cancer you get to jump the line wow if you have liver cancer <sighs> it's the, the liver is an amazing organ, and it's one of the most regenerative organs in the body, they yeah, say. Yeah, so they were encouraging me to, and they were trying to get me to have somebody who was willing to do a split liver. A split, half a liver. Right. So you know about that? So I, I haven't heard. That's, if you, you, you have to operate on both people, and there are certainly medical ethics about operating, doing major surgery on a healthy person. Sure. You take out half their liver, you put it in the other person, in a year, they both have a full liver. Wow. Yeah. Wow. But it has to be a super healthy liver. Not necessarily. See, it always gives me hope because I've drank pretty consistently mm. over my life. And well, I always think if like, you think oh. think you're in like, danger, you better stop because if you're still doing it, they won't take you. They won't take you. No, I mean, I think, I think my liver's okay. I've never turned yellow and mm-hmm. I've... Thank goodness I've liver, gone through my whole turning life. Yellow is the end stage. Wow. That's not early stage. Right. It's completely silent. If it you has- have cirrhosis, though, if you're like a super alcoholic and you have cirrhosis, they won't give you a liver transplant because they're like, you're just no. going to drink it away again. Exactly. Right. What if you do make the change and, but your liver is so regenerative that if. You had cirrhosis, would it come back? It depends how far gone it is. It depends how much you pray to Jesus. (laughs) Okay, there is... The placebo effect is much more amazing than we think it is. And the placebo effect has been documented to make cancer go away when people believed that their medication was working, even if it was just water. I'm not saying every time, but it has. There have been cases, Ooh. and it does not matter what you believe in. Whether you believe in the doctor, the medicine, Jesus, the faith healer, the medicine man. Sure. Po- well, positive thinking too. I mean, just you yeah. Know, but you have to really believe. You have to it. really believe it. That so. this. Wow. To see the mind. I mean, how strong are our minds if we can? 
I mean, A, we can believe anything we want and create our own reality. And then to actually physically make change in our own yeah, bodies and, based and on our thought. I really understand how that works, but it does work. Well, it's the meditation thing. I mean, yeah. I, the power of positive thinking. Because there's people, too, that believe in, like, the secret, right? Like... Your positive energy brings other positive energy toward oh, yeah, you. Those new, they bug the hell out of me, honestly. That particular kind of new age, or they really annoy me. And, you know, Crystals. Buddhism is kind of the opposite of that. It's like embrace the reality that all life contains suffering. In the long run, it will make you suffer less. Wow. We yeah, life. Life is suffering. That goes against so much of what we believe as United States exactly. citizens is that exactly. it's life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness has, yeah, has very little to do with suffering. But you're still going to suffer. Right. It's a, it's, a, it's a real point of view. And sickness, old age, and death, they're going to happen. They're, they're going to happen. Yeah. Maybe later, maybe sooner, but they are going to happen. Every, everything dies. Mm-hmm. Wow. Oh, every week I end up being like, oh, the impermanence of life. Yeah. <laughs> How do we... I have the word impermanence tattooed to my Oh, mind. that's what that's what you're tra- Wow. That's great. Yeah, in, trying to make the impermanent permanent, permanent is, is sort of the like cause of suffering according to the Buddha. Oh, it is. That's good. It's just but that's a, that's what we try to do. That's what we try to do all the time. Like yep. that's like when we have children it's sometimes it's well it's oh, it, no, it makes me permanent up, please don't grow up oh well that but it too. makes it if, if <laughs> i mean i don't have any kids but if you have children it lets you live longer because you've right. put your mark upon them so you become more permanent but still when they die you're gone too like it's yeah. like you're still gone you're well even if before they die you're still gone that's true <laughs> well and i try to think of like you know what's the what's the What's the point of being on the earth? And then it's to leave a mark. But a mark is something permanent. But it's not permanent. I mean, you can, you know, those tiny number of people who are still remembered from thousands of years ago. Right. Confucius. Um, still, <laughs> there's no reason to believe that's permanent. Sure. Yeah. I mean, Einstein's going to live for a long time. Yeah. Uh, or, you know, Hitler. Or, I mean, dare I say, Trump, sadly, yeah, will probably... but according to Buddha, there will be a time when Buddhism is completely forgotten and it will be revived again eventually huh. by somebody else and that that's happened cycles and cycles of times before. Right. Oof, we're getting deep. Uh, what, other, what, other, what other things do you believe in? We're going to wrap up pretty soon, but... Uh-oh. Uh, you've you've pretty you've been through the ringer here. You've pretty much hit multiple religions, made all of these choices. You've gone through a life or death experience. Uh, what makes it all worth sticking around? Yeah. So purpose. How long do we have? Yeah, as long as you know, as long as you want, really. Purpose. Um, I mean, sometimes political activism has been my purpose. Uh, sometimes. Okay, well, I'll get real quickly, try to wrap this up. So I read a book called Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. The guy who wrote it was 
in uh, a Jewish man was in the concentration camps. He Ooh. was a psychiatrist, and he ran therapy groups in the camps wow. for inmates. Oof. Um, what he noticed was that the people who tended to survive were the people who had a reason to survive. Now, I think I took that message a bit the wrong way because when there were times when I couldn't do anything useful because I was sick or whatever, I felt like, well, now I have no purpose. So, And when you're really sick, you really are looking for a purpose to keep trudging through it. Right. Um, Now that I'm a little healthier, I can see that while purpose is good, being able to just enjoy breathing or having my feet on the ground or things like that is reason enough to stay alive Wow! for me. Although I still try to do useful things in the world to help other people, which also helps, even if I'm unable to do that for some reason, it's still worthwhile. So helping other people is Helping other people is absolutely good. Right creative pursuits are also good you know you have and you have creative pursuits yeah you're a comedian right no no uh well i've done but not on any professional level no but i'm 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 working on like uh, storytelling and um uh, a one and a one person play uh, oh good a one-man show how awesome it's it's nothing concrete yet but it's something i'm dabbling with at the moment and um, I also, I, I run a little storytelling class in my neighborhood, and, and I'm going to be doing a, in the Tenderloin a meditation class in the park once a week for at least three months starting tomorrow. What, which park? The one that the, the Tenderloin, um, the, the one that's the national park? The one no, that's on not Ellis? actually even a real park. I love that <laughs> it's place. It's private property. But no, <laughs> it's, it's um, on Geary and Larkin, I believe. Oh, so there's okay. a little playground that normally you can't go to without kids, but with a proper permit, we'll be able to do it. Nice. Yeah, that's my neighborhood. I live I live. Geary and Leavenworth. So so. Yeah. The healing well right across the street from me. So, yeah. How and, long have you lived in the TL? This time, 30 years. Wow. I've been there before that, too. 30 years. Eight, yeah. Since 88. But I also lived there in the early 80s and in the late 70s. How has it changed? More it's, poo, less poo? More poo lately. More poo lately. Um, it's very complicated. At the same time as it's gentrifying, it's also getting more homeless because of so many other areas being gentrified. So it both is like getting more slummy and more gentrified simultaneously. Right. Two of the supervisors are going to push for more gentrified. Oof. And um, that's a little worrisome to me. Yeah. In my building on Geary, uh, apartments, which are studios, are now going upwards of $3,000. Yeah. Which is insane. Yeah, and in the slums. Right, because it's the tenderloin. Right. And it's like, seriously. But, but it's also a few are... blocks from Twitter and Dolby. Right, and it's also the kids that go to um, Academy of Thought, the Academy of Art. I oh. like to call it the Academy of Thought because it looks like fart with the OF. Anyways, okay. the Academy of Art is $27,000 a quarter, and it's a three-quarter school. Right, so right, when they're right. spending... $75,000 a year yeah. on their education alone. They're yeah. like, oh, $3,000 in the Tenderloin? Yeah, nothing. Right. Because they just don't even understand. Yeah, so my building is, it, it, I have a, live in a big building. It's an in- interesting mix of a lot of immigrants and also some techies. And, sure. You know, so the whole neighborhood is, 
you know, it's 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 changing, but yeah, it's, everything it, changes. It's so. crazy to me because I live in an, I live in a building that's all studios, and downstairs one of the studios has not just one dog but two, and two kids and two adults. So it's like six beings are living in this studio apartment. Yeah, the a studio across the hall from me. I don't know how many people are living in there, but there's a lot. And you really can't blame the kids for playing in the hall, even no, of course though the noise not. is a little annoying at times because there's a whole, that's their only space. Right. It's because it's it, because we're just pushing people out. Right. And then and I need to have that many people living there to afford it. Right. Is what it, or and then who gets to live in this city? It's almost like yeah. we we're deciding like only rich people get to live here, or well, it yeah, seems to be what's happening. Which I it's like that's. On a very moralistic standpoint. Yeah. So you feel like you have purpose? I do feel like I have purpose. Good. You know? and, and and sometimes I get down because I'm low energy and whatever. Right. And but uh, you know I'm and uh, you know I try not to second guess myself because I know that I may have more downer moods and then I'm higher energy now because I resonate with this time of year and then in the winter I often go down more right. but I don't resonate with the darkness and the Christmas season I don't sure. resonate with with a new lover if you wanted to take antidepressants are you allowed to or I'd is it probably like probably be allowed to I've, I've I tried Wellbutrin for oh. a few days I can't take anything that's going to make me gain a lot of weight because my meds already do that sure and well butrin it 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 kind of felt a little like speed and after a few days or like three days i was like you know what eh. i mean right. it kind of makes me feel better but in that too much coffee kind of way yeah no i understand abilify is another one of those where like it's so it has so much speed in it it feels like you can fly uh-huh. it's just like i feel so good ow I was, I was like that kind pretty of stuff. antidepressant at one time until my ex-girlfriend started taking Wellbutrin, and I, it was just like, oh, it did her so much good. So I'm like, okay, it's good for some people. Sure. And for me, eh, not really so yeah. much, probably. Right. Well, Although especially if you have a it. if you had a history of slamming speed in the early '80s, you know what the feeling feels like. And if you don't want it and it doesn't feel good, yeah. good to stay away from it. That yeah. like jittery. I've got to do something now. Where am I going to go? Yeah, yeah. I'm here, but that's not good enough. And where am I going to go? Like your brain. I don't understand brain chemistry. I mean, who does? Maybe that's God lives in all of us. It's, it's, yeah. Well, there's there is a. There is a part of the brain that wants to believe things, um, religions, political ideologies. A lot of political ideologies are faith-based, even if they're atheistic. They're sure. still faith-based. Uh, we want to do, do humans need a faith to exist, or can you be faithless? I don't know. I don't know if we need one, but there certainly is a tendency to want one. Toward faith, to believe in something. Yeah. Because if we believe in nothing, then then we're just anarchists and. Well, anarchists. They believe is, in is something a Political too. ideology, yeah. and they, yes, they do. If you believe <laughs> in the possibility of a long-term organized society without government, that's basically a faith-based belief. Because, sure. Uh, that hasn't happened oh, so far. Nihilism is the one where you nihilism don't believe Nihilism is, is yeah, where you like. that's one meaning of nihilism is that you just don't believe in anything. Right. And 
somehow and we get into complicated discussions about existentialism and so forth right. and so forth. Yeah. <laughs> Oof. Well, uh, Ethan Davidson, this has been a loads of fun. You are unlike with your experience, you are unlike any guest we've ever had in the past. And I'm super stoked and amazed that thank you for coming here to Mutiny Radio and sharing your experience, their life and death and paganism and ch- children of God and, and um, cultural background. So thanks so much mm-hmm. for being here. Any last words for our listeners? Uh, definitely vote. Vote. Uh, and um, yeah. Yeah, just vote. Vote. Yeah, I can't get out of here without saying that it's super important. Right it's now. yeah, and it's it's next week. It's next Tuesday, and if you, I already voted. Did you? Oh, okay, absentee, or did mm-hmm. you go to City absentee. Hall? Or I just I love to vote on the day. Mm. I like to go. I like to get the sticker. I don't like the distractions. I like to be able to focus more. Sure. Yeah. I uh, everybody go out and get the League of Pissed Off Voter Guide. Yeah. It's really yeah. great yeah. for San Francisco. They outline all the issues. You can make your own choices, obviously, but definitely educate yourself on what's I, happening. I, you know, I educate myself, and then I also lean on those voters, some of those progressive voters' guide because it's just they're so tricky and they word them tricky and of course they hard. do. Yeah. So. Uh, sweet. Any last words from? Uh, not really cool sounds good well hopefully i'll be able to listen to myself oh yeah 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 the podcast will come out later today and you'll be able to hear all of your happy halloween everybody that's right it's halloween today you're a bunny Mm. and i'm my i'm a sexy version of my boss his name is jake i'm sexy jake i get to go to work today so it'll be fun because i'll be there at work and he'll be there and we'll be standing next to each other and people will be like oh i get it just because all those sexy costumes are so silly to me. Yeah. Sexy Trump, sexy John sexy Oliver, sexy bunny. Moron, yeah. But, um, yeah, I know. Sexy nurse and sexy. Right. Um, sexy police officer, sexy SWAT team. Like, you know, they're young. They have nice bodies. They like to show them off. I can't really fault them for that. Yeah, no. Hey, go out with some black underwear and a halo on and be a bad angel. That's great. Do it. Do it for all of us. Uh, thanks again, uh-huh. Ethan Davidson, for being here. And next week, I don't know who our guest is, uh, but you'll tune in to Mutiny Radio. And uh, hey, go go out and um, have some purpose. Do something nice for somebody and serve serve your fellow man. Or maybe meditate, whatever you want. Uh, this has or been both. some, or both. How about all that? Uh, this has been some. Call me Tim. I've been your host, Pam Benjamin. We'll see you guys next week. Bye. Apply now for the Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival 2019. Applications open until November 30th for 25 shows in five days. 40 comics chosen March 1st through 5th, 2019 for the Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival. It's our fourth annual and we hope you apply from whatever part of the nation or international comedy scene you come from. Apply now through November 30th. Go to our website, www.mutinyradio.fm, for more details. Aloha, mutineers. Stolowitz here. People ask me, Dave, why do you spend so much time listening to mutinyradio.fm? 
Well, the answer is simple to me. It's the love I find here. We've got so many great programs here. There's something for everybody, surely. Well, maybe not the Hitler crew, but you know everyone else. Let me tell you about some of my favorite shows here at Mutiny you may not have heard about. Labor and Love with Bill Morgan is every Saturday, 10 a.m. to 12 noon. Bill is passionate about labor, jazz, and solidarity, and he tells you how it is. No BS. If somebody gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. I always learn a lot from Labor and Love. It's educational and inspirational. The Common Thread Collective is every Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. with legendary octogenarian hate ashbury activist Diamond Dave. With help from his friends, Dave talks news, wisdom, progressive activism, and spirituality. There's also open mic time for music, poetry, and stories. Comics gotta hold off till happy hour, though. Oh, and check out Flat Black Plastic with Scott Walker, Saturdays from noon to 2. The title says it all. Classic vinyl albums with no apologies. Great stuff. You can listen in live to these fine programs on mutinyradio.fm or download the podcast at your convenience on Apple iTunes. What a deal. Authentic, real San Francisco love. That's what keeps our ship afloat. Billy Bob, you ever want to be funny? Well, my dogs think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, you ever want to be, like, in front of an audience? Like, other than, like, squirrels, dogs, and dead peasants? Oh, shoot. From time to time, I've been giving it a thought of two. You know, if you go to Joke Workshop, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes. And they'll even say nice things, dude, before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dag nabbit thing called? It's Joke Workshop. Joke This is workshop? based on the Sanskrit word tat, which is etymologically the root of our word that. And it's supposed in India, you see, that this is the first word that a baby says. We all know babies say da, da, da. And in our highly paternalistic culture, it's assumed that the baby is addressing its father. And so dada means father. But in India, which is uh, where the cultures anciently were matriarchal, it didn't even mean mother, but da which was the fundamental word of all words. It is the baby pointing to it and saying that. Because when the baby wakes up and is the, as I said last night, an aperture through which the all looks at everything, the great and proper exclamation is when it sees it is to say da. And so tathata is da da da. And it means just exactly that in the same way as there was a dada school of painting in the West because they wanted to go beyond words and names, because they dada would argue, when you call a dog a dog, it uh, doesn't sound anything like a dog sounds. Or chien in French sounds nothing like a dog. But if you called a dog, wuff, wuff, that would be a proper name for a dog. So uh, this is a fundamental word. And we have great difficulty in translating it, because, in a way, it's a meaningless word. Now then, in order to understand this subject properly, I must 
uh, not take too much for granted. I have to give you some introduction to Buddhism, because this is all part of Buddhist philosophy, and Buddhism finds its context in the philosophy of India. And we have to go, first of all, very thoroughly into what Buddhism is about. And the first thing I want you to understand about Buddhism, that very few people do understand, is that Buddhism does not have a doctrine in the same sense that Christianity has a doctrine. There could be no such thing as a Buddhist creed. The word dharma, D-H-A-R-M-A in Sanskrit, which describes what Buddhism is, Buddhism is called the Buddha Dharma. Dharma means method, not doctrine, not law. It's often translated law. That won't do at all. Dharma sometimes means function. The function of somebody. His dharma means roughly what we would call his vocation. Dharma can also mean, in a peculiar way, a thing, a basic portion of the world, a thing or event. But its primary meaning, as used in the phrase Buddha Dharma, is method. And so Buddhism is a method for something or other. And so for this reason, all Buddhism is a dialectic, a discussion, an interchange between a preceptor or guru or teacher and his student between the Buddha and his disciples. Now, what is it about? First of all, the word Buddha comes from a Sanskrit root, Budh, B-U-D-H. And Budh means to be awake. So a Buddha is a person who is awake. It is therefore a title, it's not a proper name. And it's not the name of a divinity. There are many, many gods recognized, angels we might rather call them, in Buddhism. But they are regarded as being inferior to a Buddha. The gods are not yet fully awakened. Buddhism divides the world into six divisions. And uh, this is very important for understanding what's it about. You don't have to take these six divisions literally because they may equally well refer to states of human consciousness. But the six divisions are like this. You see, you draw the circle of the wheel of life. And in the top section of the circle, you have the deva world. And deva, from which we get our word devil, actually means the angels. <laughs> In, uh, the, the reason is this, that when the, the Iranians had battles with the Aryans, the, the northern Indians, the northern Indians called their gods Deva. So the Persians insulted them by using that word for devils. And then they had here Asura, who were in this division, and these are spirits of wrath. And so, opposite, Ahura in Persian, Ahura Mazda, is the Lord of Light. 
because they were enemies. But so here are the devas on top. Next to them on this side are the the powers of divine uh, wrath in the sense of energy, vigor. And below, opposite the devas, are the naraka. And those are the purgatories. That's where everybody is as unhappy as they can possibly be. Here are animals in this section. Here are men and women. And here are things called pretas. Pretas are frustrated spirits with very large stomachs and very small mouths. Now this is the rat race of existence called samsara in Sanskrit. Samsara, the round of birth and death. And this is the nadir, I mean this is the zenith, and this is the nadir. This is as high as you can get, that's as low as you can get. And that's always going to happen to you while you work on the principle of a squirrel cage. That is to say, so long as you are trying to make progress, you will go up. But up always implies down. So while you are trying to get better and better and better, that means that when you get to the best, you can only go on to the worst. And so you go round and round and round, ever chasing the illusion that there is something outside yourself, outside your here and now, to be attained that will make things better. And the thing is to recover from that illusion. So a Buddha means somebody who has woken up and discovered that running around this thing may be fun, and it may be good to run around, but if you think you're going to get something out of it, you're under illusion. Because you are forever the donkey with the carrot suspended from his own halter. Now then, it goes on to say that there's only one place, one point in this wheel, from which you can become a Buddha, and that's here. The devas are too happy to become Buddhas, or to worry about becoming a Buddha. The narakas are too miserable. The asuras are too angry. The animals are too dumb, and the pretas too frustrated. Only in the middle position, the position of man, which is, you could say, the equal position, the position of sufficient equanimity to begin to think about getting off this rat race, only from there, you see, can you become a Buddha. So the position of a Buddha may be represented either as not on the wheel at all or as right in the middle of it. It makes no difference. And so he uh, is just as, in a way, the axle point, the still point of the turning world, as to use T.S. Eliot's phrase, uh, is the unmoved center, the unmoved mover, the primum mobile, the axle tree of the world, all sorts, the navel, that's why yogis are said to contemplate their navel. The navel isn't on their tummy, it's this place, the navel of the world. So that's the scheme of cosmology of ancient Indian cosmology in which Buddhism arises. So you see, therefore, a Buddha is one who awakens from the illusion of samsara. That is, from the thought that there is something to get out of life, that tomorrow will bring it to you, that in the course of time it will be all right.
and therefore one is set pursuing time as if you were trying to quench your thirst by drinking salt water. Now uh, I can exemplify this a little more strongly by relating Buddhism to the social system in which it arose. A Buddhist uh, monk is sometimes called a shramana. S-R-A-M-A-N-A, shramana. This is closely allied to the word shaman. And a shaman is the holy man in a culture that is still hunting. It isn't settled, it isn't agrarian. There is a very strong and important difference between a shaman and a priest. A priest receives his ordination from his superiors. He receives something from a tradition which is handed down. A shaman doesn't. He receives his enlightenment by going off into the forest by himself to be completely alone. A shaman is a man, in other words, who has undergone solitariness. He's gone away into the forest to find out who he really is. Because it's very difficult to find that out while you're with other people. And the reason is that other people are busy all the time telling you who you are. In many, many ways. By the laws they impose on you, by the behavior ruts they set on you, by the things they tell you, by the fact that they always call you by your name, and by the fact that when you live among people you have to be in a state of ceaseless chatter. But if you want to find out who you are before your father and mother conceived you, who you really are, you almost have to go off by yourself. And go into the forest and stop talking, even stop thinking words, and be absolutely alone, and listen to the great silences. And then, if you're lucky, you recover from the illusion that you're just little me, the so-and-so, and you attain the state of nirvana, which means the blown-out state, the relieved state, the sigh of relief. Nirvana may be translated into English as, phew, I've at last discovered that I don't have to survive. I can survive, of course, but I don't really have to. Because you discover, you see, that what you really are doesn't have to survive because it's what there is. The real you is it or that. Tat tvam asi. That art thou, as the Hindus say. So then, in the normal life of India, which is not a hunting culture, but a settled culture. There are priests, but there is something beyond the priest. That is to say, when a man or woman 
has fulfilled his or her life in the world of society, it's the normal thing to do for a person to quit their status in society and become what's called a forest dweller. That is almost, you see, to go back to the hunting culture. They divide people into two classes, Grihasta, which means householder, and Vanaprastha, which means forest dweller. And the older people all hand over their occupations and positions to their children and enter the stage of Vanaprastha or become a Shramana and go outside the stockade. I'm speaking metaphorically. They sometimes do actually, they sometimes don't and become a nobody. They give up their name, that is to say, the label which designates who they are in terms of caste or class. They become unclassified people. That's why, strictly speaking, you see, Hinduism and Buddhism are not religions. You can classify the religions, you can say, what's your denomination? Baptist, Methodist, Catholic? Presbyterian, Episcopalian, Quaker, etc., 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 you see. But strictly speaking, a Vanaprastha, a Shramana, has no label. He is an unlabeled bottle. So, in uh, the time when the Buddha lived, about 600 BC, the Hindu system had become somewhat uh, decadent. It isn't altogether clear what had happened to it, but it is certain that it did seem in some way to be in need of reform. And so, there, there were many reasons for this. And the Buddha, as a young man, being basically troubled by the great problems that we're all troubled with, the problem of suffering and the problem of what all this universe is about, he endeavored to follow the methods that were then being used by people who were shramanas or vanaprastas, forest dwellers. And at that time, it's very apparent that the main method that these people were using was an ascetic discipline starvation, uh, very arduous meditation practices, uh, probably self-flagellation and things of that kind. And it's said that for seven years he practiced these austerities. But he found out that they didn't lead to liberation. And all the people who were practicing them knew they didn't either. But they felt that that was only because they weren't doing it hard enough. And so he propounded instead the middle way. The way uh, that led to liberation from the rat race that I've drawn here, neither through austerities nor through uh, pleasure-seeking. See, these are the two ways, the two paths. The people who say uh, the, the whole point of life is to enjoy it, to get the most out of it, you see. And the other people who tried that, and then they found it was sour grapes or something, you know, or they burned their fingers in the pursuit of pleasure. The girl that was so beautiful eventually fell apart or just turned into a shrew.
and uh, whatever it was. And uh, so they said, instead, let us torment ourselves. A lot of people enjoy this or get something special out of it. I was in Mexico this summer and what I went there for was to study Mexican Catholicism where they make a great cult of suffering. And I was very puzzled about this and wanted to understand it. And everywhere, you know, they have these ghastly, uh, tormented Christs, all drooling with blood, hanging on crosses in very contorted positions. And I realized there are certain people who find that the sitting on the tip of a spike is the realest place in the world. Because when you're on the tip of a spike, you know you're there. There's no doubt about it. And also you know that you're expiating for everything. This, uh, somehow by sitting on the, on the spike, you are paying for your guilt. And so long as you hurt, you're all right. See? So these shramanas were doing something of the same kind. And the Buddha became enlightened. Became a Buddha. He woke up. At the moment when he gave up that kind of quest, the moment he gave up, as we should say, trying to take the kingdom of heaven by storm. Now, what does this mean? It means that in his time, the way of liberation had become competitive, which meant it was on the wrong track. There are a lot of people who, we, we call it the holier-than-thou attitude, but we find it today with some objectionable Westerners who go over to Japan to study Zen Buddhism and then come home and brag about the great disciplines they've undergone and say, I sat with my legs crossed in one position for ten hours as distinct from somebody else who only sat for five. And always there's this tendency, you know, to have a marathon and be in a competition with others or with oneself about these things. <coughs> but the moment you do that, you're back on the wheel. The best thing you can get by asceticism is to get up to the deva world. You can't get anywhere else by it. You may get down to the Naraka world by asceticism too. Read the story Thais by Anatole France. So, he found, you see, that the, the real path, the middle way, the meaning of the middle way is that it's the path that can't be followed. Because to get you onto the middle way, I have to get into a dialogue with you, you see, and you say to me, because after all it's always the student that raises the problem, not the teacher, you say, well now what's the right thing to do? I say back to you, why are you looking for the right thing to do? And then you have to consider your situation, where you are. And you say, well I'm looking for the right thing to do because I feel that I'm in the wrong situation. I don't have peace of mind. Why do you want peace of mind? Because my mind is disturbed. Then in other words, you as a disturbed mind are trying to find peace of mind. Your quest 
for peace of mind is the same thing as having a disturbed mind. Now, if you don't have a disturbed mind, you won't ask for peace of mind. Well, how can I quiet my mind? Why are you asking to quiet your mind? Because it's disturbed. You see where you are? So, in this way, by this dialogue, the, the guru, the teacher, brings a person back to center. So, then this is the point. All Buddhist teaching is a dialogue. Really and truly, the man who goes out and leaves society and becomes a monk is a little bit too much. Buddhism involves this act as a preliminary gesture. But what it comes to, in the end, is the position of what's called a bodhisattva. A bodhisattva means somebody who went out of society, or we should say gave up the world in some way, took on the, the, the robe, took on the discipline. He found what he was looking for, but his finding it was absolutely simultaneous with his coming back into society. And he's called a bodhisattva as distinct from a pratyeka buddha, which means a private buddha, one who goes out and doesn't come back. And the bodhisattva is considered as having a superior attainment, superior insight. So, the important thing to remember then is Buddhism is a dialogue. And it's Teaching is a method, and not a doctrine. Now, the teaching of Buddhism is summed up in what are called the Four Noble Truths. The truth of suffering, the truth about the origin of suffering, the truth about the ceasing of suffering, and the truth about the way to the ceasing of suffering. Dukkha, D-U-H-K-H-A, is the Sanskrit word we translate suffering. Discord, frustration, something like that. That's always the problem, you see. And this, because of suffering, is the reason why human beings seek out teachers and saviors. I hurt, and I don't want to hurt. So that's the, the universal problem, you see, that everybody brings. So then the teacher replies to this problem so then the by saying, you suffer because you crave things. Trishna, T-R-I-S-H-N-A, from which we get our word thirst, Trishna, Craving or desire is the cause of suffering. That's the second truth. Now, the Buddhist analyzes this a bit. He says, uh, the world is dukkha. It's full of frustration. And it's also characterized by impermanence, anitya, and by non-entityness, anatman. That means that no thing exists 
independently. Everything is a thing only in relation to everything else. Therefore, there are no separate things, no real selves or souls or egos. And trying to cling to the world, which is necessarily changing, trying to have a separate self and to protect it, all these things are Trishna. They are the cause of Dukkha. So, the teacher, having said this, then the student comes back and says, well, how do I get rid of Trishna? If Trishna, desire, is the cause of suffering, couldn't I get rid of desire so as not to suffer? And the teacher says, well, you try. And this then is the first part of the discipline, to try not to desire, to calm your mind, to practice centering, to practice getting rid of all what they call klesha, K-L-E-S-A, uh, disturbing thoughts, distractions, evil passions, uh, immoderate appetites, and come to upeksha or equanimity of mind. And so the student practices that. And this is a very difficult and arduous discipline. And all the time he sees the teacher watching him with a slightly sour expression on his face. And he knows, of course, or thinks he knows, that the teacher is fully aware of his inmost thoughts. Because, you know, it's the Indian way. They go to meeting with the teacher. And the teacher sits under a tree and smokes a cigarette or a pipe or something. And all the students sit around cross-legged and they, they meditate. And sometimes the teacher meditates. And they can see him occasionally looking at them like this, you know. And they think, uh-oh, teacher knows what I'm thinking. <laughs> because he has the power of infinite vision, you see, and all seeingness. And this bugs them completely. Because, you see, you remember how it was in school when you were trying to do something and the teacher walked around and looked over your shoulder? It puts you off completely. And so the Hindu teacher or the Buddhist teacher deliberately puts his students off. And finally he raises in their minds an insoluble problem. That if you are trying to stop desire so that you will not suffer, aren't you still desiring to stop desire? Or the students may very well find that out for themselves. And they say to the teacher, but how are we to stop desire when we are desiring to stop desire? So then the teacher can engage them in an extremely uh, marvelous trap. Which is to say, he can, he can play it in a number of different directions. One direction is to say, well, don't try to stop all desire. But try to stop as much desire as you can stop. You see where this is going to go. Then they're going to say, well, uh, I'm a little excessive about desiring to stop desire. Well, if you're naturally excessive about it, he says, try to be as uh, slightly excessive as you can. You see? How do you see what's leading here? If you follow that course, 
you are being brought to center in the same way as I demonstrated before. You're being brought to yourself to accept yourself as you are here and now, totally. But you can't do that directly because if you try to accept yourself, you will always find that in yourself there is a spirit of the non-acceptance of things and you have to accept that. So the teacher would say, don't try to accept yourself more than you can accept yourself. Accept yourself as much as you can accept yourself. Because then you see you are also accepting the part of you that doesn't accept. Or he may try on another tack. He may say, all right now, if you've seen that it's that desiring not to desire is simply another form of desire. You, you, you're trying, for example, uh, to get rid of your sensuous appetites. You uh, are going to give up booze and women and uh, um, pate de foie gras or whatever it may be. And uh, you then think, well now, yes, this I must do. And eventually you find that you are becoming proud of your success in mastering your appetites. And you're beginning to depend on that. So the teacher says, do you see you're in the same trap as you always were? Formerly you sought spiritual security in booze and women and so on. Now you're seeking it in holiness. Formerly you bound yourself with chains of iron. Now you're bound with chains of gold. Formerly you boasted to all the boys how many sins you committed. Now you're boasting before the Lord of how many virtues you have. Same trap. Why do you do it? So the student eventually finds there's no way at all to not desire. Even desiring not to desire is desiring. Even trying to accept oneself is a way of trying to escape from oneself because one hopes psychotherapeutically that by accepting yourself you will get rid of your nasty symptoms. So you're not accepting them. You're not accepting them by the gimmick, by the pretense of trying to accept them. So this is the way in which the dialogue of Buddhism begins to work. And as it progresses step by step, let me try and show you a little bit more how it works, because I'm shortening it enormously in order to give you an outline of the whole thing. What is going on between the teacher and the student, the Buddha and his disciples, is not merely a dialogue. There is the, the verbal dialogue, yes, that goes on. But there also it spread over a long period of time. And in the intervals, the students are practicing meditations. They are making efforts to control their minds 
and emotions and practicing those things which are the Buddhist equivalents of yoga. So that in parallel to the intellectual discussion, there is going on a total devotion of one's whole being to a quest, morning, noon, and night. And so you see this works up a very considerable uh, psychic alertness. It makes the student put a very considerable psychic investment in the task. And as he goes on, you see, he becomes more and more frustrated. Because as the trap closes, and he finds that it's impossible to do the right thing, because the right thing is always done for the wrong reason. When the wrong man uses the right means, the right means work in the wrong way. You see? There is something you could do to attain liberation, or as the Christian would say, union with God, if you could do it. But the Christian would say, by reason of original sin, you can't. Because through original sin, everybody is basically selfish. And you can't be unselfish for a selfish reason. But you have only selfish reasons. So, to him that hath shall be given. But of course he doesn't need it. From him that hath not <coughs> shall be taken away even that which he hath. Poor fellow, what is he to do? So you see, in this way, <coughs> the teacher closes a trap on the student where he finds himself completely impotent. Not only can he not do anything that will bring about his salvation, he is also unable not to do anything. One might say, uh, you, you must do nothing. You must be completely passive. But you can't do that. Because the moment you try to be passive, you're doing something. So you get into the state which they call in Zen Buddhism, a mosquito biting an iron bull. Or as we would say in our Western idiom, the state when the irresistible force meets the immovable object. where something must be done, but simply cannot be done. And in this state of maximum frustration, there is an opportunity to understand the situation. To understand that I the meaning of the state, I cannot do, I cannot not do. The meaning of this state is that the separate I, which you thought yourself to be, is an illusion. That's why it cannot do, and why it cannot not do. You see, what is our I, our ego? Sometime in the development of man, 
maybe three, four, five thousand years ago, we developed self-consciousness in a peculiar way. We began to realize that by directed thought, we could control our environment. And then it was, you see, that we had a sense of responsibility. Let's just assume for the sake of argument that there was a time when nobody deliberated. They did exactly what they felt like. When you were hungry, you ate. When you were thirsty, you drank. When you were angry, you hit something. When you were happy, you danced. But you never stopped to think what was the right thing to do. You just trusted your intuition, your instincts, your unconscious, or whatever it might be called. Well, that was great, because nobody worried. Nobody had any problems when it was like that. See, a baby is in the same situation today. Now, maybe you were unsuccessful. Maybe the thing you did spontaneously was absolutely the wrong thing, and the tiger ate you up. Well, that was all right, because it really doesn't matter if the tiger eats you up, so long as you weren't spending your previous time worrying about it. See, everybody dies, and if you die clunk like that, that's that. You don't spend all your life before you die worrying about death. You don't spend all your time before you get sick worrying about getting sick. And when you see you move on that level of unpremeditated, spontaneous behavior, that's the golden age. And the reason people look back with nostalgia to the golden age is because that was the time of irresponsibility. But when people began to see that they could provide for the future and that they could look after things and take care and direct everything, immediately anxiety came into the world. See, that was the fall of man. Because then, the moment you start doing that, you begin to think, now, having thought this question through and decided that such and such is the right thing to do, have I thought it over carefully enough? Now, that's a real bugaboo of a question. You know, you go out of the house and you wonder, did I turn off the gas stove? I think I did, but on the other hand, I'm not quite sure. Let's go back and see. So, having gone about five blocks, you walk back. Yes, you did turn it off. So, you go out again. You wonder again. Now, I wonder if I really looked or whether I was so keen on finding out that I did turn it off that some sort of wishful thinking perverted my, my consciousness and whether I hadn't better check that I really did look properly, you see? Well, this way you never get away. You're trapped. So this, you see, is the problem of all uh, self-conscious beings. They are, they feel responsibility, then they feel responsible for being responsible, and responsible for being responsible for being responsible, and there's no end to it. So, then in this obscure way, everybody wants to get back to the golden age. But they say, if I just acted as I felt, and was completely spontaneous, goodness only knows what would happen. Jesus, you see, said, to do that. He did. And everybody reads it in the King James Bible where it means nothing. Take no thought for the morrow. What ye shall eat, what ye shall drink, and wherewithal ye shall be clothed. 
Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. But I say unto you that Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Oh, I mean, it sounds lovely read in church. But what it says... Everybody says, oh, 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 no, that's, that's the Sermon on the Mount, and that's not practical. Uh, nobody can do that. That may be for a few saints, but after all, in our practical life as, as practicing Christians in the modern world, we can't do that kind of thing. Well, isn't that funny? Why can't you do it? I mean, that's the real reason for saying it in the first place. Jesus said many very strange things. For example, in the parable of the Pharisee and the publican, how the Pharisee goes up into the front row and says how good he is and that he's fulfilled all his obligations and paid the tithes. And then there's this, this publican who goes into the back and sits there and beats his breast and says, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, now that man was the right man. He was justified. But the moment he's told that story, everybody creeps into the back row and says, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And they're all in the front row again. <laughs> Nobody can do it, you see. That's why the story is told. In the same way, he says, take no thought for the morrow. Stop being anxious. Like going to a psychiatrist and he says to you, oh, don't worry me, stop being nervous. Can you? See, nobody can. And also they find out, you see, that really in the end, nobody can be God. Nobody can make life any better by being responsible about it. Because what 